Well, good morning, Keystone. Uh, this definitely is a unique experience. Uh, I would much rather get to see your faces in this auditorium than be staring at a camera right now. Uh, but I'm glad that we are still able to gather together online this morning uh, and so worship God still as a church. Uh, this morning, in honor of today being Super Bowl Sunday, I decided to share with you some of the uh, foods that we most consume on Super Bowl Sunday. And so I, I've got a list of four. You might have uh, the food on there that you're most looking forward to eating today, or there might be something else in your mind that, that you're thinking, I, I can't wait to have as I watch the Super Bowl tonight. Uh, the first one is pizza. And with this, I have the uh, estimated amount of how much of this food is consumed on Super Bowl Sunday. So pizza, it is estimated that there is 12.5 million pizzas that will be made, delivered, and eaten throughout this day. Now, I, I realize uh, this is just a statistic, and this might be not be completely accurate. Uh, I, I checked multiple sources. This is not just a Wikipedia page. Wikipedia was one of my sources, but multiple sources. Uh, but estimated 12.5 million pizzas that we will eat today. Uh, the next is guacamole. It said that about 8 million pounds of guacamole will be eaten on this day throughout the US. Uh, which supposedly, I, I don't know how accurate this is, but supposedly takes about 100 million pounds of avocados to make that. Uh, in fact, I came across one article that said something about the, the Super Bowl uh, rescuing the avocado. Uh, it's like the only, I think it's the only time of the year that I see commercials on TV for avocados as well. But eight million pounds of guacamole. Uh, next is chips. And this is just potato chips, that 11.2 million pounds of potato chips will be eaten, uh, alongside 8.2 million pounds of tortilla chips, 4 million pounds of pretzels, and, and this one was maybe the most surprising to me, 4 million pounds of popcorn. I, I don't eat popcorn usually on Super Bowl Sunday, but I think about how light popcorn is and how much 4 million pounds of that is. And, and then the last one is probably a staple of many of your Super Bowl celebrations today, uh, wings. It's estimated there'll be between 1.3 and 1.4 billion wings that are consumed on this day. This morning, we are going to continue our series that uh, Brandon started and did throughout January, and I will continue in February, called uh, Fight for Joy, where we talk about fighting against sin for the sake of joy in Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the sin of gluttony. Now, now you might be thinking, oh, great, why did Kyle share all that? He's just trying to make me feel guilty about what I'm going to eat today. And I would say, no, no, no. I am not trying to make you or me feel guilty about our celebrations today. I simply share that as an example of the fact that food plays a huge part in our lives. Food and drink. And not just on Super Bowl Sunday, but every day throughout our lives. Food is a daily and big part of our lives. 
And and even with that in mind, I want to start this morning by sharing what I think are a couple misconceptions when it comes to gluttony. There might be more than these two, but but these are the two that I thought of. The the first one, first misconception when it comes to gluttony, is that gluttony is not just overeating. Gluttony is not just overeating. We might only see gluttony as a problem for people who overeat or for the average person on Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and Super Bowl Sunday, other holidays. But that that misses that there are good reasons to eat a lot. Last week, Brandon, in his sermon on sloth, shared that Michael Phelps, when he trained for the Olympics, at times would eat 8,000 to 10,000 calories a day. Did that make him a glutton? No, he he was eating that much because he was also burning 6,000 to 8,000 calories as he trained for the Olympics. And not only that, but there are times where we are called to feast, where it is good to feast and eat a lot. We see that in the Old Testament, commanded of the Israelites, and it's also what we do on holidays, that we feast. And as we'll talk about later, there might be time outside of holidays where it's good for us to feast as well. We, we can't just determine gluttony by the level of intake of food. That, that's only an external measure, and that doesn't really get to the heart. And, and then the second misconception I think we might have when it comes to gluttony is that gluttony is not just related to food and drink. Gluttony is not just related to food and drink. Gluttony is far broader than food and drink. It can be any good gift. We can be gluttons of entertainment, of news, of technology, of hobbies, of vacations, of of all sorts of things, any sort of good thing, good gift in this world. And again, I don't want us just to think in terms this morning of overconsumption of those things, but how and why we consume all these things. I'm going to be talking mainly about food and drink this morning with some other examples thrown in, but I I want us to think more broadly as well and realize there are other areas where gluttony may be present in our lives that we need to see this morning. I share those two misconceptions, or I start with them, because I think that when we only talk or think about gluttony in relationship to overeating or even just to food and drink, that for a lot of us, we might be able to dodge it, get ourselves off the hook and think, I don't struggle with that because I don't have a problem with eating too much. Or, or I don't struggle with that because I don't watch like four hours of television a day like the average American. Therefore, gluttony is not an issue in my life. But how, how quick we are to compare ourselves to other people using external measures in order to blind ourselves to sin that may still be present in our lives. And I, I don't want us to do that this morning. I also think when, when it comes to gluttony, we, we might see it as uh, the least serious of the sins on this list that we've called the seven deadly and daily sins. We might even wonder, how, how did it get on the list? That, that perhaps we view it in this way. Perhaps we see gluttony like a garter snake amongst rattlesnakes. 
that sure, a, a garter snake is still a snake, and I want to avoid it, and I don't want to get close to it, but, but ultimately it's not that harmful. That if it bites me, it might hurt, but it's not going to do damage. Whereas a, a rattlesnake is deadly and poisonous. And I think we might have this idea that gluttony is more like a garter snake, and the other sins are more like rattlesnakes. But I want us to see that gluttony is just as poisonous as the other sins that we'll talk about in this series or have talked about. John Piper has a great quote. We'll start with a quote from him and end this morning with a quote from him. And here's what he says. Says the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality that we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. My, my definition for gluttony this morning want us to work from is that gluttony is seeking satisfaction in the gifts of God instead of in God himself. Gluttony is seeking satisfaction in the gifts God gives us rather than in God himself. And with this in mind, here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 6, a couple portions in, the, in there in order to see, first of all, the goodness of food. In some ways, doing a theology of food. Why do we have this? Why has God given this to us? And then look at the dangers of gluttony and how it flips the purpose of food on its head. And then finish with weapons that we have for war against gluttony, but I think against other sins as well. And so we'll, we'll start in John chapter 6 uh, and read verses 1 to 15 to start out. But let me pray for us before we do. Father, you have given us so much good in this life. Every day we eat and drink and take in all sorts of good gifts that come from your hand. So much so that it, it can be so easy for us to become so entranced and attached and, and in love with the gifts that we forget about you or we keep you at arm's length or we just measure you by how good the gifts are that we have in our lives. God, I pray that this morning your spirit would work, would speak through me to, to help us to see maybe areas where we need to be convicted of how we are using your gifts in a way that is not good but is actually idolatrous. And that at the same time, you would awaken in us or stir in us a greater hunger and a greater desire to find true satisfaction in all that you are for us in Christ. I pray this morning over us what, what David says in Psalm 4. that We might be able to say, you have given us greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll pick up in John 6, verses 1 through 15, 
And, and kids, as Brandon said, again, th this might be the specific portion where you want to draw a picture of what's happening here and what is Jesus doing and how are people responding to him. Starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with a hu this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same thing with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Off of those 14 verses, and we'll look at a couple other passages as well, I want us to see, first of all, the goodness of food. To, to draw from them, what, what are some things we can learn about food and why God has given us food and why Jesus did this miracle of providing this feast for these 5,000, more than 5,000 people? I, I think, first of all, under the goodness of food, that we, we should see food is a manifestation of God's goodness. Food is a manifestation of God's goodness. Yes, Jesus is doing this miracle to uh, as a sign of something else. He, he's not just simply providing them a meal. He's doing something else. But he's also not doing something less than providing them with a meal. Jesus is displaying his goodness, his glory, as well as his father, by providing this massive crowd with food. And, and don't miss it. It's not just a snack. This is a feast where people eat to the full. They are satisfied. And then there's 12 baskets, more than enough left over. And, and just as this miraculous provision of food for these people demonstrated Jesus's glory and goodness, I would say so also every time we sit down to eat or drink, we should be reminded of the goodness and glory of God. In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells a group of people in Acts 14 in some ways. When they want to worship him as a Greek God, he says, no, no, don't, don't worship me. And he says this, but worship the living God. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's Paul saying. God demonstrated his goodness to all people, including you, by giving food, by, by making sure there was rain from the heavens so that food could grow and so that you might eat. 
Food is incredible because it can show us the generosity, the creativity, and the glory of our God. And this is where I just want us to stop and think a little bit because I think we know that, but let's, let's take a second and think about this. God did not have to create us with 10,000 taste buds bursting in our mouths. God, God did not have to create food with all different, different co- sorts of colors and scents and flavors. He could have just made broccoli, right? He could have, he could have just made, or whatever your least favorite food is, pick it. He could have just made that, but, but he didn't. He made all sorts of food. He's abundantly generous in giving us food. The, the rich flavor of biting into the perfect steak. The, the smell, the enticing smell of bacon wafting in her nose. The crispy, salty, heavenly flavor of biting into a Chick-fil-A fry with Chick-fil-A sauce. The sweetness of a grape or a glass of wine or a maple bacon donut or whatever else is your favorite food. All of these things and more should shout, look at how great our God is. Look at how good he is. Look at how generous he is to us. We, we should enjoy food and praise God for it. That every time we sit down to eat a meal or have a snack or have a drink is an opportunity for us to worship God. And it's an opportunity for us to tell our children or our family or our friends about how good God is in giving us this food. Food is a manifestation of God's goodness. Second, food is a means to love others with. Again, we're, we're going to see that Jesus is teaching this crowd something by giving them this food, by doing this miracle. But we would also to see, what, why is he feeding them? Because he loves them. In the other accounts of this miracle in the other gospels, it says he, he had compassion on them, even though he knows they're going to turn away from him the next day. And, and it's, it's something I think we see similar when we read about all the times in the gospels where Jesus sits down and has a meal with people. Th- think about it, as you're reading through the gospels next time, take note of how many times when Jesus is teaching or doing a miracle or something, that it starts or ends with him sitting around a table or sitting on the ground with food and other people. That it's a means and opportunity for Jesus to love other people. And I would say the same thing remains true for us today when it comes to food. That food provides a unique opportunity for us to love others. That as we gather around a meal, whether with friends and family or even strangers, it's an opportunity to invest in them and love them. One of the things that I love about taking missions trips with students at Keystone is the meal times, especially the dinner times. Because often we, we sit down and we eat and then we just continue to sit and talk because there's nothing to rush off to. Usually we, we don't let them take phones along so there's no phones to distract. There's no computers to distract. There's no TV to run off to. There's, there's nothing that we have to rush to get to and so we just eat and sit, and we share stories, and we ask questions, and we tell each other stupid jokes, 
and we, we learn more about the people who are sitting across from us. And it's part of the reason why I think sometimes people who were almost complete strangers go on those trips and they come back friends because they've had all this time, including all these mealtimes, to sit and to love and to care for one another. I, I want us to remember as we think about food. We, we know this, but I think it's really important for us to remember that meals, especially with our families, are an incredible opportunity. They, they are a God-given means to love the people right in front of us. And so let, let's beware of just eating and always rushing off to the next thing because we might be missing one of the good reasons God gives us food in the first place. Thirdly, food is a marker of our dependence. Jesus asks Philip a question before he performs this miracle. He says, Philip, uh, where, can we, where can we get food in order to feed all these people? And I love this. I think this is where we, sometimes we got to picture Jesus. And I think we can almost picture him with like the smirk on his face. Like, Philip, what are we going to do? Even while he knows exactly what he's going to do. And, and what's Philip's response? Even if we had $20,000, we couldn't buy enough food to feed this crowd. We, we can't do it, Jesus. Right? And Andrew's running around trying to see if anyone has a snack, and he, he only finds five loaves and a couple of fish. And, and this is Jesus' point. You can't do it, but I can. And watch me now do this. This miracle, by the way, is I think meant to point us back to something that happens in the Old Testament, where God for years provides manna for the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness. And Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3 tells us part of why God did that. It says this, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God let the people experience hunger and then fed them to humble them and to teach them, you need me. You are dependent on me. That every time we sit down to eat a meal or to have a drink, we should be reminded, I am fully dependent on God that without God's provision, I die. We, I, we so easily forget that in our world, probably. If anyone knows this, it's probably farmers because they realize how much rain or sunshine happening at the wrong time or in too much quantities can, can make a big deal. But often the rest of us don't see that because we always have food available to us. But every meal should remind us we are dependent on God to provide for us. And, and then the last thing under... Uh, the goodness of food, that food is a metaphor pointing to something more. We could see this in the passage that we just referenced with uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, that God said, I, I, I let you hunger and then feed you so that you might learn you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from my mouth. Or we see in this miracle that it, it's meant to be a sign that points us to Jesus is more than just a provider of bread. He is bread himself. That's why John refers to it as a sign. It's one of seven signs in the book of John. And he's saying that this is meant to point us beyond itself to something we need to learn about Jesus. That it's teaching us something 
deeper about who he is. Maybe we picture this sign almost like a uh, sample when we go into a store. For for some reason, I I think of going to like an Annie Ann's and they have those sample pretzels out. And the the sample is never meant to uh, ultimately satisfy your hunger. Uh, Unless you're one of those people that you pick one up, walk back, pick another one up, walk, I see you, you're cheating, that's not fair. But ultimately that, that sample is meant to, we eat it, and then we think, I want the real deal. I'm going to get that. And that's a little bit of what's happening here, I believe. That in providing bread, Jesus is pointing beyond and saying, you have a hunger, a deeper hunger than this food can satisfy. In fact, I think this is even part of why God creates bread and food in the first place so that we might eat and be satisfied, but then hunger more and then eat to be pointed to. We have a deeper hunger underneath the surface, a spiritual hunger that food and bread and every good gift in this world can't satisfy and that only Christ can. All of the best things we experience in this world all of the best food that we eat, all the best drink that we drink, all of the best TV shows that we watch, all of the best vacations we take, still leave us hungry for more. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He puts it so well like he often does. He said, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. Or we might say, I can't find a steak that's big enough or a TV show that's long enough. We hunger for more. There's an underlying hunger that food never satisfies, that no good gift in this life ever satisfies, a more that is only meant to be satisfied in Christ. This is where I would say food is meant to teach us that true satisfaction is found in God. And gluttony tells us true satisfaction is found apart from God. This is where I want us to see as we look at the dangers of gluttony, how gluttony actually takes the purposes of food, the, the goodness of food, and flips it on its head, and I think does the exact opposite thing that food is meant to do. And so let, let's pick up back in John. We'll jump in at verse 25, uh, and then we'll look at the dangers of gluttony. It's the next day and Jesus and his disciples are at a new town and the crowd wakes up, realizes he isn't there and goes chasing after him to find him. And we can pick up in verse 25 to see what happens. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For, the, for God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Jesus, they answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed throughout the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, 
I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I think the the first danger of gluttony that we might see is that gluttony determines God's goodness by his gifts. And, And this might sound familiar even to what we said in the first part under the goodness of God, but I want you to see how it flips it on its head. I'm always amazed when I read this passage by the people's response in verse 30 and 31. Maybe you caught it. Jesus has just told them to believe in him as the one that God has sent to offer them eternal life. And they say, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? And, And it's at this point when I read through that I just want to shout, you fools, what did he just do yesterday? What did you just do yesterday? And I think it shows like their, their forgetfulness in some ways, but I think more so it shows them saying, we'll believe in you if you do what we want. We'll believe in you if you give us what we want. And even as the you fools hits the walls, it echoes and comes right back at me and I think all of us. What do I mean by that? I mean, how often do we measure God's goodness by our present experience of his gifts? How often do we measure how good is God by my present in this moment experience of his gifts? See, gluttony would say, as long as there's food on the table, and specifically the food I like, as long as there's drink in the fridge, as long as there's time for me to myself to watch my favorite show or do what I want, God is good. But start to pull those things away and all of a sudden I will start to question God's goodness. And so food and other good gifts, instead of being a manifestation of God's goodness, become the things by which we measure how good he is to us. Gluttony would say, if I've got his gifts, he's good. But if I don't, He's not good, and he should start giving me what I want. Second, that gluttony deters our love for others. Rather than being a means, food being a means for us to love other people, gluttony ends up deterring our love for others. In the story, we read the people's desire for another meal, for more food, gets in the way of them actually knowing and loving Jesus in the midst of this. And in a similar way, Our preferences and our desires for food and other good gifts can get in the way of us not only loving Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also loving other people around us. Uh, Let me give two examples maybe to draw this out, and there's probably far more, uh, but but see, see if you catch what I'm saying in the midst of this point. First of all, do you ever find yourself looking down on someone else because of what they do or don't consume. You don't eat meat? What's wrong with you? You eat non-organic chicken? Do you you know how those animals are treated? 
And, and don't, don't miss, I'm not saying that we don't have to evaluate like our choices in food and drink and the consequences they have. But, but do you find yourself, like I have before, using food or drink in some ways to look down on others and elevate myself? Isn't that a symptom that we made the gift too big of a deal? Or, or here's the second one. This maybe hits even more closer to home. Does your or my desire for food or other good gifts ever affect how you treat other people who are right in front of you? Maybe it's, I, I just, I can't wait to get the kids to bed or to get these guests out of my house so that I can sit down, have the snack that I want, the drink that I want, and watch that show on Netflix that I've been longing to watch all day. I've done that. What's happening in that moment? I'm neglecting to love the people who are right in front of me because of my craving, my desire for something else. Anytime food or any other good gift ends up deterring us from loving other people, it's probably a sign that the gift has become too big of a deal in our lives. Third, gluttony depends on the gift. Gluttony depends on the gift. Rather than seeing how food would teach us to depend on God, gluttony would say you should depend on food or some other good gift. If, if we look at verse 26, we can see Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He, he calls the people out. They, they say, hey, how'd you get here? He says, uh, you're just looking for me because I fed you. You didn't really understand what the sign meant. You're not, you're not really looking for me. You're just really looking for what I can give you. And then he says, don't spend so much time chasing after what is perishable, chasing after food, but rather seek me and the eternal life that you can find in me. Or, or in other words, we could say, stop seeking something in the gift of food that only I can give you. Don't depend on food. Depend on me. Gluttony is found whenever we run independence towards God's gifts rather than running independence to him. Here's a, a quote from someone named Rebecca DeYoung, and I, I think she puts it well here. She says, when the gluttonous feel need or emptiness, they do not want to have to depend on God or wait on God to fill it. The pleasure of food is not only readily available, but something we can use to quell our own feelings of need and longing. And so let, let me again give you a couple examples I've seen from my own life and see if they connect with your own experience at all. For, first of all, that, that sometimes food and other good gifts can become what we run to for comfort when life is uncomfortable. Do, do you ever find yourself going through a rough day or trying, facing a rough day and, and you get through it in some way by thinking about what you're going to eat that night or drink that night or enjoy that night. Thinking, oh, this day is awful. Nothing is going the way I want it to go. But I'm going to have Red Robin tonight. Or th there's a full container, container of double dunker in my freezer at home. Or there's still a glass of wine that I can drink when I get home. Or, or, or my favorite TV shows on tonight. What, what are we doing in those moments that, that in, in essence, we are looking to God's gifts to comfort us rather than trusting him 
to be the one who comforts us. Or, or, or maybe food and other good gifts can become our refuge when life is stressful. That, that we think, I'm so busy and I'm so stressed out and I'm so overwhelmed and I just watched two hours of Netflix and spent zero minutes casting my cares on God. But it was Netflix's fault. They kept playing the next episode. But what, what have we done? We, we've just run to a good gift seeking refuge rather than running to God. Or, or here's another one, that, that maybe food and other good gifts just become the source or the ultimate source of our happiness. Last year during quarantine, uh, my wife and I probably got more takeout food than we've ever gotten before. And, and part of that was because no place was open, we could only get takeout. But part of it was also because in the midst of being stuck at home, getting takeout food was something to look forward to, which I, I don't think is a bad thing. But I found, especially as I look back, that I was much happier on the days where I knew that we were getting takeout than I was on the days when there wasn't takeout to look forward to. And it, it even probably affected how I talked to and treated people around me. How, how foolish is that? That takeout would be the, the measure of my, that Chinese food would be the measure of how happy I am. But that's, that's what gluttony does to us. It takes a good gift like food or drink or something else and says, this will comfort me. This will be a refuge to me. This will make me happy. Which leads to the fourth thing under the dangers of gluttony, that gluttony dulls our appetite for God. And, and I think this is the most dangerous part of gluttony. And so I, I want us to catch this. The, the saddest part of this story is that we see Jesus says, I'm the bread of life standing right in front of these people. And all they want is another slice of sourdough. That, that they ignore and disregard and numb their hunger for God by chasing after another meal. This is I think, again, the greatest danger when it comes to gluttony, that rather than hungering for God, who is behind every good gift, every meal, every drink we experience or we receive in this life, we become so entranced with his gifts that we just keep him at arm's length. And, and in fact, maybe one of the greatest dangers for us in 21st century America is that there is so, so much for us to consume. That there's always more food in the fridge or in the cupboard. That there's always a new restaurant in town to try out. That there's always another TV show on Netflix or another movie coming out or another vacation to take or something new that we just consume and take in and take in and take in. And we never even stop to ask, is this really satisfying me? Is, is this really what life is ultimately about? Or, or is this just a poor substitute for God? Are, are we glutting ourselves on all sorts of things so much that we feel full even while we starve ourselves from the one who truly satisfies, the bread of life, Jesus? John Piper Again, I said we'll start with a quote. Uh, this is the first part of the quote. We'll, we'll end with the last part of this quote. 
in a couple minutes. If you don't feel strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. God did not create you for this. So how do we fight back? How do we fight back against gluttony? I want to give uh, three weapons for war this morning. And, And the first one might sound a little bit odd to you in talking about gluttony, but I hope you'll hear me out and see this might be a way for us to fight back against gluttony. Here's what the first one is. Feast physically. This might be in some ways the the easy, I don't know if it's easiest, but maybe the the most enticing application. uh, To throw a feast. It's something, again, we said we saw commanded in the Old Testament that their calendar year was built around seven feasts, three main feasts. And they were called to feast to celebrate God's goodness and commemorate his saving acts in their lives. The the same reason why we as Christians hopefully feast today on Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, celebrating God's goodness, commemorating his saving acts with a meal, with food. But I think there's a place for us to feast outside of those times as well. And, And here's what it might look like. Here's what it might look like. Maybe we intentionally set aside an evening to gather with our family for an extended time around a table or to invite friends over to gather around a table. And then we buy the good stuff. We splurge. We, we get, you, you get the, the T-bone steaks or the, the uh, rack of ribs or, or the lamb chops or, or whatever it is that, that you, you really enjoy to eat. And you get uh, the, the good appetizer and maybe the, the deluxe Pelman's cheesecake and, and the, the, the drink that you enjoy. it, And then you sit down with those people and you praise God for his goodness and you eat. And then you linger around the table and you talk. And maybe even you make it a priority to say, okay, we're, let's talk about some way that we've seen God's goodness in the past week or the past month. And if you're having other people over, obviously give them a heads up in advance. Don't just throw them at, throw that on them when they get there. But, but wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be a good way to put food in its proper place as we both celebrate God's goodness in his gifts and use them to intentionally love the other people around them? In fact, it's something we, we could even see maybe in Deuteronomy uh, 14, 24 through 26. I think I have the passage. And, and if the way, this is God talking to the Israelites, uh, telling them at the end of the year when you've gathered your tithes, uh, if going to Jerusalem is too long for you, here's what you can do. If the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chose is to set his name here. And here's the important part. Then you shall turn it into money. Bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. That's an incredible command. (laughs) What, What if we threw a feast in a similar way? Obviously, we're not commanded to by the Bible anymore. This is for the Israelites, 
but wouldn't it be a unique and creative and helpful way to fight gluttony and to put food and God's gifts in their proper place? Second weapon for war, fast. We are willing to forego or give up things or fast from things if we believe the goal is worth it. And and Brandon, I think, even hit on some of this last week in talking about sloth. But I want to hit on it here with fasting. Moms, you, you are willing to give up hours of sleep when your child is young in order to love them, care for them, and provide for them because you believe it's worth it. You'll gladly sometimes even give up that sleep. Maybe not gladly. But give it up because you know this is better. I will gladly give up lunch if I know that I'm going to Shady Maple for dinner. Pretty much the same thing as moms, right? A little different. But, but you get my point that, that we're willing to give up something if we believe there's something better to be had. And I think this is what's at the heart of Christian fasting. Now, now there's a difference, and we got to see this. There's a difference between fasting to gain something and fasting to enjoy Christ and what he's already done for us. See, sometimes we might approach fasting as if it's sort of like spiritual extra credit. I've done all the other things, but let me fast so that I can show that I'm extra spiritual. And Jesus warns against this in Matthew 6. It is a form of self-righteousness that will send us farther away from God rather than closer to him. Don't fast in that way. But, but there's a fasting that we might do as a way of saying, this thing will not ultimately satisfy me, but Jesus will. And so I'm willing to give up this thing for a period of time in order to remind myself of that truth and in order to depend on God to comfort me, to satisfy me, to fulfill me, rather than running to this thing like I might so often do. If we finish out our John Piper quote from earlier, here's what he says. There is an appetite for food or for God, and it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and say with some simple fast, this much, oh God, I want you. We, we might fast from food or just one kind of food. We, we might fast from drink of some sort, or we might fast from television or, or a show or, or, or a hobby. Or, you can get creative. It can be anything. We might simply look for what is a gift in my life that, that might have a little bit too much power over me? And how might I give that up for a time in order to remind myself Christ is satisfying, not this? And in fact, we might even see that gift had far more power over us than we thought as we tried to give it up. And as we give something up, that we intentionally replace that as well with something better, that, that we feast spiritually, not just when we're fasting, but, but all of life, hopefully. Jesus tells us he is the bread of life. And he calls us later in this chapter to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Not literally, but essentially saying, if I'm not as real to you as food, then you're missing out. I am the bread of life and I will satisfy you. That, that we feast on Christ. How do we do that? I think we, we probably already know how to do that, but it's good for us to be reminded and think through, okay, how do we do that? We, we feast on him by reading his word. We, we feast on him by uh, meditating and believing 
his promises to us. Sometimes I think we get so caught up in, in reading large chunks of the Bible, multiple chapters at a time, that we don't stop to slow down and to chew on and, and take in the sweetness of one or two verses that give us some promise. We, we feast on Christ by running to him in the midst of stress and difficulty and discomfort in this life and trusting that he will satisfy us, not the gifts. We, we feast on Christ by gathering together on Sunday mornings to worship and to remind ourselves of how good he is and of his salvation for us. And not just worshiping on Sunday mornings, but then worshiping on our own time throughout the week. Not feasting on Sunday and fasting throughout the rest of the week. We feast on Christ by really believing he is the bread of life, that he came to live, die, and be raised, not just to save me and offer me heaven, but to satisfy me forever, both now and into eternity as the bread of life. We, we might think about it in this way. What, what is the best way to convince a person not to eat Taco Bell? Is it to tell them that is really unhealthy for you or you will feel bad after eating that or they don't even really use real beef, I don't think. It's some mystery meat. No, the best way, I would argue, to convince a person not to eat Taco Bell is to hand them a Chipotle steak-filled burrito. And, and as they bite into that, and as they taste it, and as they eat it, and as they say, this is good, Taco Bell loses its appeal and its luster because this is so much better. What's the best way to fight gluttony? To be feasting on Jesus to be taking in his words, to believe his promises, to worship him, to recognize he is satisfying. The, the goal of fighting gluttony, the goal of fighting sin throughout this entire series is, is not simply that we would say no to sin. That's not the main goal. Although that's, yeah, we want to say no to sin. The goal of this entire series and of fighting sin is that ultimately we might enjoy Jesus. Do whatever it takes to enjoy him because he is the bread of life who says, I will satisfy you. This leads to the conclusion of the big idea for this morning. The battle against gluttony is won by being satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, all these years ago on a little mountain, outside of Galilee. You were there in the flesh. Jesus, you were there and you saw this crowd and you performed this miracle of giving this food ultimately to teach them and to teach us that you alone will satisfy us. Jesus, I pray that we would believe that, that we might see the areas that we are running to in our lives, seeking satisfaction in your gifts, maybe not even realizing how empty they're coming up. 
and instead we might run to you, hungry, longing to have more of you, longing to feast on Christ and all that he is for us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.